Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, continually draw near to us by your Spirit to renew our hearts and our minds, our body and our souls, that we might ingest your word, that we might know your word, that we might forever be changed more and more by your word, that we would bear the image of Christ in ourselves. And it is for his sake, your son Jesus' name, for his sake, Jesus Christ our Lord, that we do pray. Amen. I have to say that yesterday I was reminded of the weakness of the body. I woke up yesterday with just extreme abdominal pain, and that lasted all day such that I just couldn't get out of bed but for a few minutes at a time. Seems so strange that just a little bit of pain there in my abdomen could keep me so weak, feeling so weak, such that I finally did go to urgent care and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. And so I just went on home to see if it got worse or if it got better. And praise the Lord, it's gotten better. I'm not really feeling anything now. But nonetheless, that little bit of weakness in the body made me realize how truly weak I am in myself. That I can barely do anything when I'm confronted with pain, when I'm confronted with struggle, when I'm confronted with anything that pushes back against me. In myself, I am weak. In myself, I am poor. In myself, I'm really nothing at the end of the day. And as we've been going through this middle portion of Romans, we've been hearing about two paths, I think. Paul continually goes back and forth, back and forth, explaining one side of the coin and then the other side, explaining one path and then the other path talking about the difference between living for sin and living in the Spirit now in chapter 8. Previously, it was about being a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And even before that, it was about living out baptism, a baptismal life, or rejecting that baptismal life. But nonetheless, Paul can, keeps coming back around and around in a circle, spiraling further and further out as he expands what he's talking about here. And here, we been, begin to get here in chapter 8 to that pinnacle of what these two paths are about. He especially places it before us here, beginning at verse 6 and 7 and following. We read verse 6 last week about setting the mind on the Spirit and having and knowing life and peace. And now we pick right back up at verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we see two paths. We're hearing about two paths. We hear about the path of the flesh and the path of the Spirit as we go on here in chapter 8. Each has results that will flow from it and that we will hear about as we continue through this passage. But hear that again. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. On the path of the flesh, you do not want God's law. You don't pursue it. You ignore it. You turn away from it and do your own thing. And it's a reminder that in being in the Spirit, though Paul did say previously, that we are free in Christ. But that freedom is not a freedom to ignore God's commandments. It's a freedom to live within those commandments, 
and to finally begin doing those commandments, living a life that is obedient, a life that recognizes the sinfulness within us and confessing it. But the path of the flesh rejects that law. It runs away from that law. It hates that law such that it will not submit to God, such that it cannot. In and of itself, in and of ourselves, we resist God continually. In and of ourselves, we would remain in the flesh. We would remain in a state of sin. We would remain in a state apart from God in Jesus Christ. And that is the path of the flesh that we are seeing here today. However, Paul continues. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. See, Paul reminds us that in the path of the Spirit, it means that God dwells in you. But he does take a moment to pause for reflection if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, he reminds us, that if you do not have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. If you don't have Christ, then, this, then God himself does not dwell with you. You're still on that path of the flesh, and he calls for reflection. He calls for people to step back and to ask themselves, to confess, to look at what the Spirit says through the Word, to look at what the Spirit has confronted us with, and to confess it, to confess our sinfulness in order that we might more fully and continually dwell in the Spirit. And Paul's use of this word dwell here isn't talking about this momentary excitement, momentary jubilance, momentary infilling of the Spirit. He's talking about a continual presence of God within you. That if you have the Spirit, you are dwelling in God Himself. If the Spirit dwells in you, then God Himself dwells in you. And that is the path of the Spirit, to have the Spirit of God in you, to have the Spirit of Christ in you, to belong to Christ himself. Continuing in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. See, Paul keeps going back and forth here between this path of the flesh and the path of the Spirit. Reminding us of the results of each path. Here, Paul brings it to the forefront that one result of the flesh is that we cannot please God. But another result is that the body is dead because of sin. If you follow the path of sin, your body is dead because of sin. But even with the Spirit, there is life, but yet the body will die. The body is tainted. The body is contaminated. The body is broken because of sin, and that physical body will die. But the soul, your spirit within, has been enlivened, regenerated, brought back from the dead. That is the result of the Spirit being in you, that your spirit has been made alive again. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. That is because the righteousness of Jesus has been brought into you and applied to you by the indwelling of the Spirit who brings Christ to you and puts Christ in you. You see, we have a very Trinitarian thing going on here as Paul is moving, revealing who the Spirit is. On one hand, he just simply calls him the Spirit. 
But then he says the Spirit of God and then the Spirit of Christ. And bringing it all together, if Christ is in you, the Spirit is life who is in you. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. The path of the flesh will lead to death and you'll remain totally in death. But the path of the Spirit as He dwells in you, as He renews you, as you listen and pay attention to what He is saying as you are convicted by Him, He brings life because of Christ's righteousness brought into you by His work. That's the reference Paul is making when he says the Spirit is life because of righteousness. It is because of Christ's righteousness, because of what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection and ascension, that he, the Spirit, brings Jesus' righteousness into you and works it into you and begins changing you. Enough so that Paul can declare that if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in you. That Spirit who continually remains in you, even though your body is dead because of sin, He's working life throughout all of who you are. That Spirit raised Jesus Himself from the dead, the power of God bringing Jesus up from the dead, the third person of the Trinity, all the persons working together, raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And that very Spirit who participated in that act, who is part of that act, now dwells in us. He dwells in you through faith. And if he raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to give life to your mortal body, to my mortal body. He's going to renew my mortal body. He's going to renew who I am more and more and more, such that even if I die in this physical body, this physical body will be raised up on the last day because the Spirit dwells in it. The Spirit dwells in me. The Spirit renews me. The Spirit changes me. And it's so appropriate that Isaiah 55 goes with this as we think about the difference between following sin and following the Spirit, following the flesh and following the Spirit. Because what did Isaiah 55 talk about? He's like, it says, come and receive free food. Come and receive free wine. Come and receive all that you need. Now, I love in verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? You see, when we follow the path of the flesh, that's what we're doing. We're spending our money on that which does not satisfy. We're spending our money on that which doesn't bring any return to us. Because the result of the flesh is death in ourselves. But here we discover that in the path of the Spirit, we can buy wine and milk without money and without price. We can receive from God His gifts in the Spirit. We can be changed and renewed such that we don't need to pursue the flesh anymore, such that we can be released from that pursuit and follow the path of the Spirit because God is pouring into us all that we need in the Spirit. He's pouring into us all that he wants to give to us in his grace and in his goodness. And to keep in that path of the Spirit is to let the Spirit work in you, to let his work flow through us, 
As Paul said in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. That we are called to that confession, to that reflection, to confess that sin that is still a part of us, that is still within, and to be released from it. To pretend that our sin is not sin is to separate ourselves from the work of the Spirit. To push back against the Spirit of God who dwells in us is to resist and to throw away those good gifts. But we can turn back in repentance, to turn back in confession, to turn back and ask for forgiveness because it is there for us to be received at any time, to turn away from that which goes against God, to let His law work in us, to convict us, to turn us away from what we would be in ourselves. And so that's not to say that we don't ever sin, that we don't ever stumble, that we don't ever find ourselves committing multiple sins or the same sin over and over. The question is, how do we then respond as the Spirit convicts us of that sin? Do we excuse that sin? Or do we confess it and repent and beg God, pray to Him for the strength to resist and to grow and to change more and more into who He desires us to be as we walk on this path of the Spirit? And so then we look to the results of the path of the Spirit for us. We look to the results now in verses 12 through 17 as we are turning more and more, walking on that path of the Spirit and Him working in us, renewing us and enlivening us. Paul says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We have a debt that we owe now because of the Spirit being in us, but it's not to the flesh. After all, to submit to the flesh is to die. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's plain and simple. To pursue the flesh is to die. To pursue the flesh is to move forward only in death. That is the only gift the flesh gives to us. That is all that results from the path of the flesh is death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit we are convicted and changed. By the Spirit we are moved closer and closer to God. By the Spirit we put to death the actions, the deeds, those habitual habits that are sinful. We quit pursuing that practice of unrighteousness and begin pursuing the practice of righteousness. We begin pursuing that which the law calls us to do. We always have to remember that part of the call of the law is to confession. As we let the law impress on us what God has called us to do, we can confess that which we have done wrong, that which we have not accomplished, that which we have ignored, and know that we are forgiven because of Jesus' work. That is part of the path of righteousness to confess our sin, for in confession we are drawn nearer to Jesus. In verse 14, we get the summit, I think, in this passage of what it means to walk on this path of the Spirit and the result that comes from the Spirit dwelling within us. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Blessings innumerable will come to us because of the Spirit dwelling in us. And one of those highest blessings is the fact that we are adopted as sons of God. 
Yes, it says sons. There is the Greek word huios, because it's all about becoming an heir. It's all about being united to Christ, being adopted into what he has accomplished. The son is the one who inherits from the father. In the context here, it's the son who inherits. And so to be adopted as sons of God, regardless of what we are, whether man or woman, means that we receive all the benefits of Christ. We receive all that is his in the father because we are counted as a son to receive, to receive an inheritance. And if we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, we can cry, Abba, Father. We receive that sonship as we walk in that path of the Spirit. We're given freedom to now call God Abba, Father, to not just refer to Him as dear Lord God, to not just say Almighty God, but to say Abba, Father, to come into intimate relation to Him, to come into intimate communion with the one true Father. And we can call Him that, Father. That word Abba is an Aramaic word of endearment of a child to its father. We don't have a one-to-one -one translation of it. Some say maybe Daddy or Papa could be a good equivalent in English. But it's a reminder that we have that intimate connection that close connection, that if we reflect on what should be the love of a father to his child, we have an infinitely greater love from the Father in heaven to us as his children. We are free to come to God and say, Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's why Jesus gives us that prayer and begins it with our Father. Because those who have been put into Christ, who have received his spirit, can come to God as a father to, to them. We are free from fear. We are free from condemnation. We are free from resisting God and viewing him only as a tyrant over us, only as one who would limit what we can do in life, only that we can quit coming to him and viewing him as a dictator over our life. Because when we are in the flesh, when we are in our sin, that's what he feels like. That's what he seems like, that he is nothing but a dictator trying to control every aspect of our lives. But it's because we're letting sin control every aspect of our life that suddenly the Father looks dark and ugly to us. But when we live in that life of the Spirit, when we live in that spirit of adoption, we begin to recognize more fully that God is our Father who cares deeply for us, who is intimately connected to us, that we enter into that familial relation to Him, and that we can receive Him as one who wants to do us good, who wants to share with us His gifts of true life and salvation. Such that Paul continues in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. What is this bearing witness that the Spirit does? Here the result of the Spirit's work in us isn't some type of ecstatic new revelation to us. It's not some ecstatic experience in the Spirit that Paul is talking about here. But the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit through the Word itself. 
through what the Word teaches, through what the Word says. Here in Romans 5 through 8, we've been hearing continually about how we are children of God through faith, that God has called us to himself and that we receive forgiveness in Jesus. And if we receive that forgiveness, we've received the Spirit. And if we receive the Spirit, then we've received adoption. If we've received adoption, then we are children. And that's what it's saying right here in Romans 8. The Spirit who led to this being written down, who guided the writing of this, is witnessing to us right now, to each of you today, that in Christ you are a child of God. That having the Spirit and believing that to be true means you are a child of God, that He is at work in you to make you one with Jesus. And being a child, then you're an heir, an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. A fellow heir with Christ. Imagine that. Everything that is Jesus's becomes ours. Everything that the Father gives to Jesus in his death and resurrection. The glory, the honor, the power that Jesus receives through him becomes ours. In some mysterious sense, we get to be glorified alongside the Son. As Paul continues, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will be glorified with Jesus as we suffer with him. As we suffer in this life, yes. As we wrestle and fight against the sin in us, as we wrestle and fight against the sin in others, as we suffer for the sake of Jesus, we'll also be glorified with him as we walk this path of the Spirit. Just as Jesus endured his suffering on the cross, his suffering throughout his life, we too will endure because the Spirit is with us, as we turn to the Spirit, as we turn to Christ and look at Him and let the Spirit encourage us, let the Spirit push us more and more into being children of God, we will endure that suffering. There are many aspects to what that suffering can entail. I can't pretend to be able to enumerate them for you. But I know that part of that suffering is most certainly wrestling against our own sinfulness, wrestling against our own tendencies, wrestling against that which sin would have us do that would go against God's law. That's putting to death the deeds of the flesh to resist those things, and that creates suffering because that creates tension because it means going against the thing that we want to do and doing the thing that God has called us to do. And we often find ourselves in the flip position that Paul found himself in in Romans 7. The thing I want to do, obeying the law of God, is the very thing I find I can't do. But that's a word of confession that he is admitting, I fell at what God calls me to do. Within my mind, within the renewed spirit that Jesus has given to me, I want to do that which God has called me to do according to his word. But I find in my own flesh, in my own body, resistance fighting against it, leading me to do the very thing I'm not supposed to do. And so I confess that. I turn from it. I repent of it and turn to Jesus. And I'm suffering on account of that. We'll suffer as we share who Jesus is and the work he is doing with others. We'll suffer in various ways. Lost relationships, lost friendships maybe. But that's part of this life. That suffering for the sake of Jesus looking back to him and crying out for his spirit to come to work in us and to work in those around us. 
knowing that those around us, as long as they live in the flesh, they will die. And so we cry out to the Spirit to go to work in them, to bring Jesus to them, to reinvigorate their hearts and their minds according to the Spirit. For after all, He has called us not to the spirit of slavery, but to the spirit of sonship. And so for us, we are called away from the fleshly life that we would want to live in ourselves. That would be so easy to fall back into. That's part of our suffering, as I already said. That tendency to want to go back to sin. That tendency to want to go to live in ourselves. That tendency to want to ignore others and their living in themselves. Reveal, not wanting to reveal to them the love and the grace of Jesus. Revealing to them the calling that God has placed on us to avoid sin, to turn away from sin, to repent of the sin that clings to us and lives in us and leads to the death of our mortal bodies, save for the work of the Spirit in our resurrection. And so the Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit dwells in us that we might also be glorified with Him. The results of the Spirit as we walk the path of the Spirit. We are sons and children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We've been given the strength and the power to resist and to wrestle against and to turn away, to confess that which is broken within. We've been given the ability to live in the Spirit because the Spirit dwells in us. Because the Spirit dwells in us, we are called to continually Look to Christ for our salvation, to look to Christ for our renewal, to look to Christ to change that which is broken within, to change that which is sinful within, to give us that strength that he has promised us, to resist the temptations that are all around us. We have that very spirit that in those struggles we can cry out, Abba, Father. We have that very spirit cry out to God as Father for the strength we need as we suffer for Jesus. As we suffer and fight, we cry out, Abba, Father, knowing that He is with us because His Spirit is with us and has made us able to say that. And so in our suffering, and our fight against sin, in our fight against the sin in others' lives as we share Jesus, cry out to Abba, Father, Cry out to Him to work by His Spirit in us, in you. Cry out to Him to work into us more and more the works of Jesus. To work into us more and more that image of Jesus. To renew us in heart and mind that we might follow this path of the Spirit and always cry out to the Father for the aid and the help that we need. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.